Uh, okay, so last time we talked about this section in the beginning of John chapter 8. Um, that last verse of chapter 7 and then the first 11 verses of chapter 8 are the story about Jesus and the woman who is caught in adultery. And so we talked about this last time. Um, probably most of you weren't here, but um, we talked about how that passage is probably not in the Gospel of John. It's probably not in the original Gospel that John wrote. But it probably did actually happen. Uh, it probably is a true story about something that Jesus did and said. Um, so, you know, that was an interesting discussion, but the conclusion was it doesn't really belong in John. It doesn't belong with the flow of the passage. So we're just going to set it aside and not talk about it today. Um, but it doesn't change any radical gospel. Doctrine. Yeah, exactly. That was the other important conclusion is that, like, there's no real important doctrine of the Christian faith that rests solely on this passage that is disputed. Right. Um, so, and that is true of all disputed sections of the Bible, which of which there are not many. Right? This this passage w- is one of two, like paragraph length passages that are disputed in the Bible. There's this one, the the uh, story of the woman caught in adultery, and the other one is who remembers. It's the end of the Gospel of Mark. Like the Latin, I think I think it's Mark 16. That passage is also disputed. Um, but we have three other gospels that talk about the resurrection of Jesus, and so and none of those are disputed. Um, so again, no no core doctrine of the Christian faith rests on any disputed text in the New Testament. All the other passages um, that might or might not be in there that may or may not be disputed are like little little things like. A sentence, you know. Then they went over to the Mount of Olives, or whatever. So, um, things that really don't impact the meaning, the the overall significance of the text uh, in a big way. Um, okay, but yeah, leaving that discussion aside, let's turn back to what Jesus is doing in Jerusalem uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles. Right. So that's the setting for John chapter 7 and 8, is Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the biggest feast of the year for the Jews, um, bigger even than Passover in their minds. Uh, and so he gets to the feast, and he starts teaching them, um, and really kind of arguing with them back and forth about, about who he is, what his mission is, uh, where his teaching comes from, and where he comes from. And that's really the first 36 verses or so of chapter 7. And then in verse 37 of chapter 7, it says, that's kind of a new section. It says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Okay, so verse 37 of chapter 7 starts this, this new section where it's the last and greatest day of the feast. And this is where Jesus is, is coming and, and making his uh, sort of core proclamations to the crowd. And he's doing it on the greatest day when everyone is gathered in the temple, huge crowds. He wants everybody to hear this message. Um, so we're going to basically go over that whole message today, Lord willing, if, if I get through it all. Um, so that goes from chapter 7, verse 37. That's where it starts. It goes up through verse 52, 
and then we're going to cut out that disputed section and jump right from 7.52 to 8.12. Um, and the structure of this passage, it's three proclamations of Jesus, right? Jesus stands up and gives three proclamations, um, and then each one is followed by confusion and division and conflict with the crowd, or with the Pharisees, right? So, proclamation followed by confusion and conflict. Right, so, you've got three proclamations. of Jesus, followed by this conflict and confusion of the crowd and the Pharisees. So, proclamation number one is, uh, come to me and drink. And that was chapter 7, verse 37. And we went over that a couple of weeks ago. Um, so, we're not going to uh, we're not going to dwell on that, but it is the proclamation that starts out this chunk of teaching on this last and greatest day of the feast. Come to me and drink. I think it's just, it, it is worth reading again. Uh, look at verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Now, what is he talking about? What are these rivers of living water that are flowing out of the believer? I'll give you a hint. It's right there in the next verse. Yeah, the Holy Spirit. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Alright, so, Jesus is saying... And, and remember, on the, on the previous days of the feast, he's just been proclaiming to them their problem, right? That they're far away from God, uh, that they don't know God, they can't get to God, and they can't please God. And so then, on this last and greatest day of the feast, he says, Hey guys, I am the solution to your problems. Come, if you are thirsty, come to me and drink. You know, if you've realized that you have a problem, if you've realized that you have this spiritual thirst... Come to me and drink, and I will satisfy it. And then, just to give the, the rest of the outline, proclamation number two is, I am the light of the world. And that is in chapter 8, verse 12. Because remember, these are connected, right? If the, uh, if the paragraph on the adultery, uh, the woman caught in adultery is not there, then these... Uh, these texts just flow right into each other. Chapter 7 flows right into 8, 12. And then proclamation number 3 is you will die in your sin. And that is you know, I should have written this down. It's later in chapter 8 verse 21 and 24. Right, so these are the three proclamations that Jesus makes in this section to the crowd. And we're going to look at how the crowd and the Pharisees respond. They respond with confusion, and they respond with conflict. Um, okay, so we covered the proclamation, come to me and drink, last time. We covered what that means last time. We didn't get to the response, though. The response is, uh, is twofold. 
there, there's the response of the people, and there's the response of the Pharisees. All right, so the people, the people are divided over who Jesus is. They respond with confusion. So, does somebody want to read chapter 7, verses 40 through 43? When you heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some, but some said, is this the Christ to come from Galilee? Is not the scripture say that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people. Some of them Thanks. wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so they're confused, right? Some of them think that he's the prophet. Anybody remember what the prophet means? It's Yeah, it's the prophet that Moses talked about, right? And um, so I think there is the, the other thing that they were saying is this is the Christ, right? And they, they certainly had a political view of who the Christ is. Christ just means Messiah. Right? It's, the, it's the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Um, and they certainly thought that the Messiah, the Christ, was going to be a political leader who would deliver them from Rome. But they also had this idea of the prophet, which is the one that Moses wrote about in Deuteronomy when he said, uh, Moses said to Israel, um, you know, in the future, God will raise up a prophet like me from among you. And so they, they had this expectation that there was going to be this, one, this guy called the prophet, who, you know, who knows what he's going to do. He's going to be powerful, I guess, and miraculous like Moses. And then there's going to be this other guy called the Messiah, or the Christ, who's going to deliver us politically from Rome, or from, you know, every oppressing nation. And they had this, they separated the two in their minds. They didn't know that the Bible was talking about these two prophetic figures as the same person, right? They didn't know that, that uh, they didn't understand that God himself was going to become man and was going to be the prophet, priest, and king for his people. They didn't have that, that, uh, that unified Christology, as we would call it. Right? They didn't understand. So they were arguing about which of these prophecies Jesus was fulfilling. Because they, they knew that he was, a, um, he was a miracle worker. He was a man mighty in word and deed before the Lord. Uh, but they, they were arguing about what role he exactly played in prophetic fulfillment. Um, <clears throat> but it just shows that they didn't really understand. And then look at what they said. They were also uh, misguided and misjudged where Jesus was from. Right, so they said, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Now, they were right about that. Right? They... Um, you know, the Old Testament did prophesy that the Messiah would come out of David's city, Bethlehem. So they were right about that. Uh, but what were they wrong about? They were wrong in their assumption that Jesus didn't come from Bethlehem. Right? They were wrong in assuming that he came from Nazareth. They didn't, they didn't bother to check where he was from. Right? They didn't bother to go ask his family, find his brothers or his mother. Um, and, and interview them. So, they presume that Jesus is from Galilee, uh, along with everyone else. And they're wrong about that, and so they falsely conclude that he can't be the Messiah because he's not from the right place. So the crowd is confused. They have some bad teaching. They don't understand the scriptures. They understand that Jesus is someone special, 
that you know he has divine power maybe but they don't get his identity okay so that's the crowd they're confused now the other part of this response to this first proclamation is the response of the Pharisees the Pharisees are not just confused they're openly livid they're hostile so who wants to read verses um, 44 through 52 and some of them wanted to arrest him but no one laid hands on him the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to him why did you not bring him the officers answered never has a man spoken in this way the Pharisees then replied to them you have not been led astray too have you not one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, the one who came to him before being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge the person unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered and said to him, You are not from Galilee as well, are you? Examine the scriptures and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Mm-hmm. All right, thanks. Yeah, so we have, I think we've mentioned before that John, he, as an author, loves irony. He loves irony. Uh, by which I mean, you know, he likes putting words in people's mouths or calling attention to when people speak things that may be true in a sense that they don't understand or are otherwise, um, you know, ironic that they would actually be, that they would be saying something like that. So the Pharisees, they're clearly frustrated, right? They're frustrated that they sent out the temple guards to arrest Jesus. And the temple guards were like, we can't arrest this man. He said, he's, no one speaks like that. No one has ever spoken like this. He's, he's clearly a teacher of God. And so the Pharisees get angry and they denounce Jesus. But in, so doing, in their denunciation, they show three examples of irony, uh, that we'll just highlight real quick. Okay, the first is in verse 48. Um, They say, Not one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? And is that true? No. Because what's going to happen next? What's the next thing that happens? Yeah, Nicodemus steps up and stands up for Christ. And, you know, we don't know if at this point Nicholas, Nicodemus is, um, sorry, not Nicholas, if Nicodemus is saved and has, like, saving faith, but he's at least willing to um, sort of put himself out there, stick his neck out there um, for the sake of Jesus in the midst of the hostile Sanhedrin, right? So when they're saying, not one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has, has he? They're not really speaking accurately, and Nicodemus himself, two verses later, is just going to contradict that, that declaration. Oops. All right, so that's one example of, of irony in what the Pharisees are saying here. And the second example, verse 49, look at that. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, the one who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a person unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? So what's the irony there? What are the Pharisees saying about the people, about the crowd? That they don't know the law. What does Nicodemus point out immediately after that? That they're not following the law. Right? They themselves are not following the law. The law doesn't try people um, without hearing from them first. You know, the law doesn't pass judgment before gathering the evidence. 
So, so what they're saying is ironic, right? They're accusing these unlearned people of not knowing the law when they themselves are not following the law, right? They're not, they're not even following the explicit law. Um, and, you know, earlier we saw they're not making, they're not even applying the law the right way. They're not making right judgments about the law. Uh, the controversy between them and Jesus was over the Sabbath. Remember, he was, uh, Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath and uh, the Pharisees were saying, you broke the law. And Jesus was saying, you're judging superficially about the law. You yourselves recognize on the basis of, of circumcision uh, because you, you would circumcise a baby on the eighth day, even if that eighth day was a Sabbath. You yourselves recognize that there's a higher law than the Sabbath. Right? That you have to be nuanced in how you apply these things. You have to look to the spirit of the law. And so he says to them, don't judge by appearances, judge with righteous judgment. Uh, so they don't even know how to, they don't know how to apply the law. They don't know how to get to the spirit of the law. But here they're not even applying the procedures of the law. They're judging a man before they hear from him. Um, so that's irony. Uh, because they're accusing the people of not knowing the law. Okay, third example of irony here, verse 52. They answered and said to him, You are not from Galilee as well, are you? Examine the scriptures and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. You think that's true? No, it's not true. Yeah. Do anybody know what prophets um, came from Galilee? Yeah, this is it's one of those trivia... Um, I don't think so. But Jonah came from Galilee and Nahum also came from Galilee. So Jonah and Nahum, those were two prophets who, who definitely came from Galilee. There may have been more. Uh, I think some of the prophets, we don't know exactly where they were from. But they're clearly wrong to say that no prophet comes from Galilee. Um, so, but they're also wrong about Jesus being from Galilee. right? So they're doubly wrong. <laughs> you know, they're just making this confident assertion that no prophet comes from Galilee, um, but they're just they're just wrong. So lots of irony uh, that that John puts in here in in the mouth of the Pharisees. Yeah, what do you think? Why why would what is the importance of the Pharisees' response being here? Evidence alone is not enough to convince people you know, to, to repent and follow Christ, right? That's not, that's not enough. Like, uh, just seeing will not make people believe in the way that saving faith operates. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's a big, a big part of it, right? And, and just the lengths that people will go to, to deny, uh, the evidence, right? They're, these, the Pharisees here who, are, who spend their lives devoted to learning and interpreting the law have now so twisted the law that, that you know, they have all these ironic examples of um, you know, not applying the law correctly in terms of judicial procedure or asserting that no prophet comes from Galilee when, when there are two clear counterexamples in the law that they're experts in, you know. That people are go- willing to go through great, go to great lengths to to deny the evidence and avoid um, having to reckon with God. Yeah, I think that's why that's in here. But so you know, I think one of the things you get from um, recognizing that this 
the story about the woman caught in adultery is not really in the Gospel of John is if you take that out and set it to the side, um, then verse 52 of chapter 7 flows right into 8.12. So after this aside about the Pharisees and their hostility, then it, the, the camera snaps right back to Jesus standing in the temple court proclaiming to the people, I am the light of the world. So check out verse 12, chapter 8, verse 12. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So this is the same scene, right? He, He has just said, come to me and drink. And then, you know, the Pharisees have this argument off on their own, whatever room they're in. Um, And then uh, back to Jesus in the temple saying, I am the light of the world. Uh, So these proclamations really followed on the heels of each other, one after another. And um, so we're going to dig in, we're going to spend probably most of our time, hopefully on this verse here, digging into what it means that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Um, well, first, we need to understand the historical and scriptural context to this, right? Because remember, in, in chapter 5 of John, Jesus said, Moses wrote of me, right? That, that's his whole point, is that he's not just coming in a vacuum and presenting himself as God without any forewarning or knowledge. He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures, including what Moses wrote about. And so, uh, I think a couple times ago, um, I mentioned that three of the most significant things that Moses wrote about uh, that happened to Israel are, uh, number one, God feeding them manna from heaven when they were hungry. Number two, God giving them water out of the rock when they were thirsty. And number three, God leading them through the desert by the pillar of fire and cloud. Right, So, lighting their way through the desert. So, bread water and light were three of the really significant ways that Moses wrote about God providing for his people. And Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of all of those things. Uh, In chapter 6, he said, I am the bread of life and you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood to have life in yourself. Uh, And then in, uh, in this feast, at the Feast of Tabernacles, he says, come to me and drink and streams of living water will flow from you, right? So I'm the, I'm the rock who gave the living water. And now, in this verse, verse 12, he's saying, I am the light of the world. And that, I think, is a reference back to God leading the people of Israel in the pillar of fire. Um, Because it says he was a pillar of fire at night when they needed light. Um, So, yeah, in Exodus, the pillar of fire and cloud lighted Israel's way. And it also protected them uh, when when Pharaoh's army was, um, was rushing toward them at the Red Sea. The pillar of fire and cloud moved behind the Israelites, between them and the Egyptians, and um, protected the Israelites from their enemies. Uh, But it's not just there. It's not just there that God is called the light of his people. Um, It's really all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Like in Psalm 27, verse 1, it says, "...the Lord is my light and my salvation." So that verse is doing two things. It's calling the Lord light, and it's also connecting light with the idea of salvation. Right? So that's pretty significant. Um, the Lord is my light and my salvation. 
And then uh, in Psalm 119, verse 105, this is a famous verse. It says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Right? So uh, God is the light of his people. And one of the specific ways that he's the light of his people is by providing his word. You know, um, giving us his, his word and his teaching so that we know which way to go. So that it lights up our path. Right? That's one significant way that God is the light of his people. Um, But it's not just the Old Testament, it's the New Testament as well. If you go to the very end of the Bible, into Revelation, and if you look at Revelation 21, uh, there's a description of the New Jerusalem, which is the eternal state, right? At, at, uh, after everything is done, after Jesus has come back, and after the Millennial Kingdom, after Satan has uh, you know, been released for the last time and then judged by throwing him into the lake of fire, after all that, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, uh, looking like a bride ready, ready to be married. And John gives a description of the new Jerusalem and what, it, what it's like. And in verses 23 and 24 of Revelation 21, he says, And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So in the future, in, in the, the eternal glorified state, uh, God himself is going to literally be the light of his people. Again, like like he was in his in the desert for Israel. Um, so this connection, this identification of God with light, goes throughout the Bible. And so when Jesus says, "I'm the light of the world," he's not just making up a neat metaphor. He's actually claiming to be God. Right? He's he's claiming to fulfill a role that only God fulfills uh, for his people. And you know, I think um, that it is fashionable to say, or at least I heard a lot uh, when I was uh, when I was younger, that oh, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. We're he's just misinterpreted. He's misunderstood. He was he never claimed to be God. He just claimed to be a good man, a good teacher. But you can't read the Gospel of John closely and come away with that understanding. You know, you can't read. Um, a statement like, I am the light of the world, in the context of the rest of the Bible, which Jesus quoted from all the time, and say, this man never claimed to be God. Right? He's, he's not just claiming to be a good teacher. He's claiming to be and to do things that only God does for his people. Um, by the way, if you're lost in the darkness and someone comes along claiming to be the light what's the logical response to that what do you do you say oh that's nice i'm glad that there's a light out there i'm gonna go this way you know (laughs) you follow him right that's that is the logical response if you are in darkness and you understand that you're in darkness that's the key you have to understand that that you're in darkness but if you're in darkness and you know that and someone comes along who is the light you follow him you have no other choice you can't, uh, I mean, your other choice is to stumble around. Uh, that's why he, Jesus immediately goes to following, right? I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. 
Okay, so he's not, but there's even deeper symbolism that we can look into here. It's not just all throughout scripture that it talks about God being the light of his people. It's, he's actually also making a reference to the ritual of the Feast of Tabernacles. Right, and we saw this with the, the first proclamation in the water. Uh, remember how there was, in, in the Feast of Tabernacles, they had this water drawing ceremony uh, where the, the priests would have this golden jug, golden vessel, that they would draw water from the pool of Siloam and then march it up to the temple and have the, the water pouring ceremony. And the people um, would, would shout about uh, drawing water from the wells of salvation. So they, the people knew that uh, water was a big part of the Feast of Tabernacles and that water was connected to salvation. But it's the same thing with light. Light was also a huge part of the Feast of Tabernacles and their, their ritual celebrations. Uh, because at night during the feast, they would light four huge lamps in the court of the temple. And everybody would celebrate and dance around the lamps in the court of the temple all night long. And so, like, the light was a huge, um, was sort of the, the culmination, almost, of, of the, the feast, of the, the party part of the feast, the festival. Um, and so people would dance around these lights, and they would sing praises, and they would hold um, burning torches in their hands. And it was, so it was a light-filled festival in which the people rejoiced. And... So Jesus is pointing to the thing that's happening immediately on this last and greatest day of the feast. And he's saying, you're about to celebrate in the light of all these great lights. That's me. I am the light of the world. Yeah, so it's a very powerful image. And it's very richly connected to scripture and to the traditions that that, uh, the Jews were celebrating at the time. Right, yeah, that, that identification of light with the pillar of fire and cloud was in their liturgy. It was in their... Uh, so it's not like a stretch that, that Jesus would be maybe pointing back to this. It's No, it's definitely explicitly there. Um, so what does Jesus mean by the one who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life? What do you guys think that means? The one who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Yeah, regeneration. Yeah. Uh, one is like, especially for believers, that's mm-hmm. an important reminder, is that we're no longer shackled yeah. by sin. So, uh, we're no longer in the flesh. Correct to identify darkness with sin, like walking in darkness with walking in sin, and I say that because um, if you look at the the letters that John wrote after his gospel, or maybe even before his gospel, um, he like light and darkness are always used as parallels for righteousness and sin, right? When he in in First John he talks about walking in darkness versus walking in the light, and it's very clear from the context that he means. Sinning, practicing sin versus practicing righteousness. So I think it makes sense to, to see the same kind of thing here. Right? Jesus is saying, the one who follows me will not walk in sin, he will not walk in the darkness, but he will have the light of life. He'll have the ability to please God, the ability to walk in righteousness now. 
Um, in other words, God's indwelling presence will enable the follower of Christ to overcome sin and live the true life that God intended. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. So I think it, it's interesting, um, Aaron, you brought up um, the distinction between regeneration and essentially sanctification, right? There's, there's the, the point at which the light switch turns on, right? The Holy Spirit regenerates our heart and brings us from a dead person, a spiritually dead person, to a spiritually alive person. And that is one, one moment, right? That, that's an instantaneous point at some, at some time that happens to us. Um, but then there's sanctification, which is the process of walking in the light that is incomplete. You know, sometimes we stumble around. Uh, sometimes we don't walk perfectly in the light. Um, but, you know, uh, John says, uh, we are not without sin. If anyone is, claims to be without sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. But if we confess our sins, he is what? faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's a bit of tension between those two things, right? Like, on the one hand, we're instantaneously justified and declared righteous before God, spiritually regenerated. On the other hand, we have this this sort of halting progress towards sanctification. Um, And, you know, I think we have to be careful not to separate those two things too much. Right. It, um, the the Christian, if somebody is truly a believer and has truly been saved, they will make they will be making some progress towards sanctification, some progress in walking in the light. God will be giving them some victory over sin in their lives. Um, you can't just have a Christian who is saved but is in no way walking in the light. Jesus is not their Lord. Right. You can't you can't drive a wedge between these two ideas of justification and sanctification. Yeah. One side is like when you are saved. Uh-huh. There's people I've definitely met who are like, I can't sin anymore. That's impossible. Like, right. Uh-huh. Don't you know Scripture doesn't it say that when saved, saved for all time, right? Whatever. Mm-hmm. So there's like that one side, and then there's the other side where like the sanctification thing. Oh, that just means I can sin now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I mean, that used to be called easy believism. I don't know if that's a term anymore, but um, when I was growing up, they were like, "That's easy believism," you know, you just, or cheap grace. Cheap grace would be another term I've heard for that. It's like, oh yeah, I, I believed, therefore it doesn't matter what I do, I'm saved no matter what, right? But you can't take that attitude towards salvation. And yeah, and then the other extreme, uh, you see that too, of perfectionism, uh, where some people are like, I don't, I don't sin anymore because I'm saved. By, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> there, uh, uh, years ago, in our church, there was actually a, a controversy over that, or a division over that. There was a particular person who believed that, who believed in the doctrine of perfectionism. And he was a very strident person who gathered a few people around himself in the church, and there was almost a split. You know, he, he at some point, um, the conflict between him and the elders came to a head, and he was forced to leave, and I think a couple of people actually departed with him. Um, 
and yeah, it was it was bad. I didn't actually know what was going on at the time, uh, but I heard I heard about this later from people who um, who were more in tune with what was going on. Uh, but yeah, there are really people who believe that, who believe that um, true Christians never sin anymore. Yeah, he was here. Yeah, false teaching is really damaging. I mean, we. It's it's uh, it's hard for us to have a sense for how bad false teaching is and how destructive it can be to people and their souls. You know, oh man, there's so much false, yeah, like distortions of actual. Yeah, I met a guy in grad school who, um, he was he didn't know I was a Christian, but he was saying like, oh yeah, those Christians are crazy. They believe that if you're born again, that means you can't ever do anything wrong. Uh, and I was like, that's not what that means. He's like, yeah, no, it really is. I'm like, no, I'm a born-again Christian. <laughs> and like, that, that's not what I mean by that. <laughs> and um, he was like, oh. Uh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, light of the world. Uh, what time is it? 10.20. Yeah, 10.20. So let's move on, I guess, to that. Oh, to the response, right? Because he proclaims it. Do you think the people just understood and said, oh, this is great. What a great message. No, they're confused. Of course. So, conflict and confusion, part two. Let's read, who wants to read verses 13 through 20? So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony, uh, your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness, judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury, as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because this his hour did not yet come. Thank you. Yeah, so they hear this great proclamation, I am the light of the world. They they probably understand that um, he's claiming to be God, so they think it's a blasphemous pro- proclamation. Um, and so they sort of lash out with this rhetorical trap. And it's a rhetorical trap because earlier in chapter 5 of John, verse 31, Jesus had said, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. Remember, this was a, a back and forth between him and the Pharisees um, at, at Passover, possibly a year earlier. Um, and so, and he had said those words, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. And so they're trying to catch him in a rhetorical trap here. They're saying, aha, your testimony, you're testifying about yourself. Therefore, your testimony is not true by your own admission. All right. Uh, so you guys see the, the trap they're trying to spring on him. Um, but of course, you know, Jesus' point when he said, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid, was that the scriptures testify about him to his identity as God. Um, and, you know, not, not, he's not just speaking on his own. The scriptures point to him and he fulfills the scriptures. And the Father sends uh, his testimony 
with in the uh, in the form of all the miraculous signs that he's able to do right so that was his point just that he's not speaking on his own uh, the Pharisees are trying to catch him in this contradiction though uh, so what is Jesus's response well he kind of reiterates things that he's already told them uh, he says even if I'm testifying about myself my testimony is true um, you know it's not don't don't judge by appearances. Don't take my words out of context. I'm not saying if anyone testifies about himself, his testimony is invalid. Uh, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. Uh, that is because I am the eternal God who cannot lie. Right? He knows that he comes from heaven. He, come, he is the eternal God, um, co-eternal with the Father. And the character of that eternal God is one who cannot lie. Right? So throughout this chapter and throughout the Gospel of John, there's this, there's this theme of where does he come from, you know, of, of like people's origins. Right? And that was a big thing in, um, in the, the Jewish psyche was, you know, if you come from the right place, then you're trustworthy you're true. If you come from the wrong place, you're untrustworthy. That's why it was such a big deal, like, you know, we are children of Abraham. We come from, you know, a pure family. A, a uh, We were not born as illegitimate children, right? We come from the line of so-and-so, right? That's why they kept all these genealogies, because they were so concerned about demonstrating that where they came from was legitimate and trustworthy. Um, and they, that's why they lobbed so many accusations at Jesus on the basis of where they thought he came from. They thought he was an illegitimate child of Mary and Joseph. They thought he came from Galilee. They thought he was a nobody in terms of genealogy. Um, and so they said, well, you know, on that basis, you're untrustworthy. But Jesus is saying, um, you know, not only are you placing your faith... Um, you know, illegitimately in, in this question of human origins, you don't understand where I come from. I come from God. I am the eternal God. I cannot lie. Because I come from there, because that's my origin, I am always testifying the truth about myself. Um, but he's, his further point is that he's not even speaking alone. Right? The Father is speaking about him. Uh, his Father is backing him up. Um in those senses that we talked about, right? Through the scriptures pointing to him and through the miraculous signs that Jesus is able to do. Okay, so so that's his response. And it's basically stuff that we've covered already, so I'm not going to spend too much time here. Um, and the Pharisees are basically just confused because they, thinks, they, they think that he's talking about his human father, right? When he says... Um, when he says, even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true, I am he who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. They, their response makes it clear that they think he's talking about his human father. Right? And they're like, so where is your father? So that we can cross-examine him. And he's like, no, you don't get it. <laughs> you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Right? So obviously he's talking about God, his father. And they, they don't know him, and by, his, by their inability to understand Jesus, they prove that they don't know the Father. Alright, so that's conflict and confusion part two in response to I am the light of the world. 
now let's go on to proclamation number three. You will die in your sins. All right, who wants to read verses 21 through 30? Um, then he said again to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, Surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Then they were saying to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, What have I even been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to say and to judge regarding you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I say to the world. They did not realize that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own, but I say these things as the Father instructed me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he said these things, many came to believe in him. All right. Yeah, so the first two proclamations were good news, right? They were, come to me and drink, and you'll have living water. And I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't walk in darkness anymore, but you'll have the light of life. Those were good news. But that good news was not going to help anybody unless they realized that they needed it. Uh, Unless they realized their predicament. And so the third proclamation is bad news. Um, It's a proclamation of urgency on Jesus' part. You will die in your sin. So he proclaims their problem, not just, not just the cure, uh, he proclaims the disease also. He says, I'm going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Uh, and then in verse 24, he says, For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So what does he mean there when he says, unless you believe that I am? Is he saying, unless you believe that I exist and that I'm standing before you right now? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And unless, unless you believe that I'm the Messiah and the chosen one, and specifically that I am God, um, because if you look at that, what he's claiming, he says, "For unless you believe that I am, whenever you whenever you hear." The phrase "I am" used in isolation like that, with no, um, with no participle on it, your ears should sort of perk up, and you should ask, "Hmm, could this be an example? Could this be a reference back to um, when God spoke to Moses in the burning bush?" You guys remember this? Um, yeah. So Moses, God called out to Moses from the burning bush and said, "Go to my people Israel, and and I'll send you to deliver them and lead them out of Egypt." And Moses says, "Well, who shall I say sent me?" And God says, "You say that I am sent you." Right. So that that's the name that God proclaims for Himself is I am. That's actually the basis of the name Yahweh. Yahweh in in Hebrew means I am. Uh, so that's God's name. 
And when Jesus says this, uh, not not everywhere that he says the phrase "I am" is he is he claiming this name of Yahweh. But here it's pretty clear that he is because of what happens later in chapter eight, um, in verse fifty-eight, when he says, "Before Abraham was, I am." He's definitely claiming to be Yahweh there because what do the Jews do? They, yeah, they pick up stones to execute him for blasphemy. Right, so they get it. They understand that he's claiming to be Yahweh. And I think the, the connection, the close context connection uh, with that verse makes it likely here that Jesus is saying, I am in the sense of claiming to be Yahweh. Uh, so he's saying, I'm Yahweh. And unless you believe that I am Yahweh, unless you believe that I am the eternal God come down in human flesh, you will die in your sins. That's what he's saying here. Um, so that's his proclamation to them. And what is their response? It's a big, huh? big huh? Yep. Conflict and confusion, part three. Verse 22, look at that. Therefore the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where, am I, where I am going, you cannot come. So they don't get it. They don't get that he's... What, what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. They're like, oh, is he talking about killing himself? Surely not. So they don't understand. <laughs> and then they say, and then verse 25, after he repeats it, after he says, unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins, they say, who are you? So they don't get it either. They say, wait, believe you are what? Believe you are who? Um, who are you? And Jesus is kind of exasperated at this point. He's saying, what have I been telling you from the beginning? So, yeah, what has he been telling them from the beginning? Uh, so they, the crowd says, who are you? And Jesus says, well, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? He's been saying from the beginning that he's God in the flesh, right? I and the Father are one. Um, you know, I am, I am the bread from heaven, uh, come to me and drink. I'm the light of the world. He's been. This has been his consistent message that he is uh, that he existed with the Father before he was born, uh, and that he has come from the Father to save people from their sins. And so he's like, I don't. <laughs> I've said it fifty times already. Um, and then he says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know who I am. In other words, after the cross, after you put me to death, then you will know that I am God and was sent by the Father to do His will. And that is basically what happens. Um, you know, because after Jesus was crucified uh, and raised from the dead, then 50 days later, uh, there was Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples. And all of Jerusalem saw this and was like, what's going on? And Peter stood up and gave his sermon, his first sermon before the crowds of Jerusalem. And he said, this Jesus, whom you nailed to the cross by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, uh, God, has made, God has raised from the dead and made both Lord and Christ. So, and, and it says they were cut to the quick and said, brothers, what shall we do? So they did understand after Jesus was crucified, after they lifted the Son of Man up on the cross. They did come to understand, at least a lot of them did, who Jesus was. But they don't understand now. 
they don't get it yet. I mean, they probably want him to answer the question, like, you know, because they're confused. They're like, oh, are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? You know, someone else, maybe? They probably want him to answer that question. But he can't answer that question because the premise of the question is wrong. These aren't, like, separate people. It's not like there's a prophet and a Messiah who are different and have different roles. They just don't have the right category to understand who he is. So that's what he's trying to get them to understand, right? They don't, they're not primed to get that there's going to be a human being who is actually God in the flesh. That's what they need to change their minds about and understand. Nonetheless, uh, in verse 30, at the end of this section, it says, and as he said these things, many came to believe in him. But by now... Uh, you should uh, that should set up a little red flag in your mind, right? When John says they believe in Jesus does he necessarily mean that they have saving faith? No, not always. A lot of belief in, in the Gospel of John is unsatisfactory unsaving, not saving faith um, and I think as the I think the rest of the chapter will show that their faith was not actually of the kind that saved them uh, because of the way they react to Jesus. Um, But at least at this point, some were ready to kind of mentally accept what he was saying and uh, not show outright hostility to him yet. But that wasn't good enough for Jesus, as, uh, as we'll see when we get to the rest of the chapter. Any, any questions or comments? Yeah, yeah, he doesn't just come out and say, like, teach a systematic theology of the Incarnation, right? <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if he said, now, uh, you know, God, I, I am in nature and essence God, co-eternal with the Father, and uh, God chose this point in time to, um, for me to take on human flesh and empty myself of, uh, of the Godhead, or, you know, of, of certain divine attributes and... Uh, and come be a man and die for your sins. That would be nice if he like laid it out as a as a theology textbook for us. Um, but I don't think they would have understood that even if he did. Yeah, I think he's trying to he's trying to get more powerfully at the at the sort of images and concepts that they already are familiar with from the Old Testament and from their their feast celebrations and trying to say like. Okay, you understand the light of the world because you dance around these lamps every time the Feast of Tabernacles comes uh, comes along. Well, that's me, right? Um, trying to think what it would be like in in modern times. Um, a rager, yeah. Uh, no, I, I don't think it was that kind of party. <laughs> All right. Well, let me close this prayer. 